The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Um, well, um, we've all had uh, that experience where we're flipping through TV channels, or maybe you're on YouTube, um, and you fall upon one of these National Geographic videos uh, where what do you see? This poor, weak, slow antelope. He's always expressionless on his face, if you've ever noticed this. He's typically expressionless on his face. He's, he's moving in slow motion most of the time. And he's just, he's running. And then all of a sudden, the scene widens out, and what do you see right behind him? It's a lion. Just raw, ripped, powerful, chasing him down, hot, confident pursuit, right? And you just kind of, and you're just flipping through the channels, but you all of a sudden kind of recoil back into yourself, and you're just thinking, oh no, you know, this is not going to go well for this little guy. Um, it's not going to turn out well. Um, he is closing. He is, he is sucking up the ground very quickly, and it's not going to go well. And what's always worse, or what I've always had the experience of, of having, is that there's always this British guy um, over the top who's talking, and he's saying something to the effect of, you know, this is just the animal kingdom, you know. Uh, and he's always arguing for why it's actually good and right that this lion is chasing down this antelope, and he, he hasn't eaten for days, and, um, and you're just like, That's, this doesn't, you know, fix the situation that he hasn't eaten for days, and this is the animal kingdom, and this is the circle of life. It doesn't actually fix it, and, and he's saying these things just as the lion, like, digs in and kind of drags him down and begins to gnaw on his flesh, and we, we laugh a little bit because we've all had this experience, but um, what the Bible kind of over and over shows us is that this killing scene changes completely uh, for you and me because we realize that this National Geographic scene is actually the very picture that corresponds to, to how your relationships wor- relationship works with Satan. First Peter 5.8 says, um, your adversary, the lion, uh, excuse me, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion, looking for anyone he can devour. And every single one of us, this gets really, really personal because we know about a marriage that's been destroyed. We know about key leaders maybe in, in the Southern Baptist Convention or outside of the Southern Baptist Convention. You don't, you don't have to look very hard to be really personal about someone being destroyed by Satan. And we're fools, I think we're fools, if we don't look at the, at the dead corpses of these ministries or marriages and not see that Satan is behind them. And so from Genesis 3 on, what we learn, it's the very beginning of the story, right? What we've learned is that every single image bearer, you and me included, have been running for their lives. We are running like that antelope and he is tracking us down, tracking us down, tracking us down. Until Matthew chapter 1, when you get this great hope that there's this hero figure coming, and then he eventually, what, he he dies, this is some 2,000 years ago, historic, he dies outside Jerusalem and delivers a decisive blow to Satan's power. 
So my aim this morning is to sober you. I want to sober you. Some of you need to be sobered. You, you don't think rightly about the person of Satan. Um, and I also want to strengthen you. If you're a Christian, you have great hope. You have great strength. Um, so sober and strengthen. And, and for you as, as a Christian, um, or if you find yourself this morning here as, as a non-believer, then I, I want to uh, appropriate this to you as well. But if you're a Christian and you're going to be faithful, um, in any form of what we would understand as faithfulness, you're going to have to overcome three things, and that's the world, the flesh, and the devil. Every single one of us have to overcome these things by the power of Christ, by the grace of Christ. And my suspicion is that you, like me, have the least wherewithal or know-how on the devil front. You just don't know much about him. You, you're you're kind of confused. You grow up an American and, you know, living in a scientific world that tries to explain everything uh, and we just go, yeah, I'm not really sure. I, I think he's out there. I don't really know what to do with him. So um, Stephen, Brandon, Nathan, David, and I, all the pastors felt like Mark, uh, this, this, um, this sermon would couple really well with Mark because Mark, uh, as Nathan walks through this book, it's just constantly assuming that you live in a worldview, uh, as we should, they live in a true worldview, um, where Satan is active and destroying people, and marriages, and uh, ministries, and uh, discipleship, and and constantly against um, Christians. So we felt like it was a good uh, sermon to kind of give some background. So you're already there, but I want to read Colossians 2, 13 through 15 again, just to get a little bit of background, and we'll focus in on verse 15 primarily. That's what the sermon will look at. But starting in verse 13, And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. So I want our time to be governed by basically three questions coming out of verse 15, uh, which will be kind of suffices the, the expositional part of the sermon. And then I'm going to venture out into um, what I'll just call an expose on Satan. So we're going to look at 10 different truths about Satan um, that are still true, even post the cross, uh, but then also things that have changed about how he works with um, or, or interacts with Christians. So these are the three questions. What does it mean that, the, that at the cross, Jesus disarmed Satan and his rebel angels? How exactly did Jesus put Satan and his rebels to open shame? That's the second question. And then third, how does God triumph over them in him, meaning Jesus? So as I said, we'll go kind of rapid fire through just 10 different truths at the end, and we'll wrap up um, with... Uh, with two takeaways. So this first question, what does it mean that at the cross Jesus disarmed Satan and his rebel angels? Look at verse 14 because there is the answer. He has erased your record. That's how he has disarmed him primarily. So from the very beginning, Satan's strategy was to accuse you and to damn you with your sinful record. That's his main artillery. That's his armament. And so at the cross, what happens is for blood-bought Christians, 
there's no record to accuse with. He removes it. It's taken away. He's erased it, verse 14. So, so by his blood, he ransoms you and he steals away your old record. That's what he's doing on the cross. He's disarmed him in that way. And he snatches Satan's means of accusation off of his tongue. It's a forked tongue, and he steals it right off of it. He has nothing to say because there's no record left. It's been replaced with Christ's record. So how does he disarm him? Um, It's through the cross. He's justified you. He's declared you innocent and righteous. And he's um, reckoned to your account his righteousness. You had unrighteousness, he's now given you righteousness, and Satan has nothing to say. Not only that, in this erasing aspect, when you read uh, in Leviticus 16, this idea of a scapegoat, the the sins being taken away, that's what Jesus is doing, what Hebrews teaches. Second question, how did Jesus put Satan and his rebels to open shame, or as the CSB um, rightly translates it, disgrace them publicly? So he to open shame or disgrace them publicly. How does he do this to Satan? The language of the text is, is like a parade. So he's made a show of Satan. He's a spectacle. At the cross, Satan has made a spectacle. So he puts him on display, Jesus, at, at Calvary. Satan is put on display for the watching eyes of the heavenly armies, both fallen and unfallen. But he's made a parade of, he's a spectacle. And so if you look at it from eternity's vantage point, Satan becomes at Calvary this big, fat, cosmic joke. And so there's many things that are good about Good Friday, but in part, one that is often forgotten is this, is that he's a spectacle. And so what is so good about Good Friday? It's that you've been given righteousness when you repent of your sin and you turn to Christ, but it's also that Satan has no power, he has no authority to accuse you. He's been put to open shame. And so you, you probably know this. Um, if you don't, uh, let me try to inform you here. There's no question across the, the pages of Scripture that Satan is declared and shown to be the most cunning, um, most crafty uh, creature in creation. That, that much is true. But that also unveils uh, his Achilles heel. It's his pride. So you could say that Satan is so smart that he's stupid. I mean, he never sees it coming. I mean, he actually, in Matthew chapter 4, when he goes to take on Satan out in the wilderness, it seems as though Satan believes he can actually take down the Son of God. The height of hubris. What is available to me and you is is a, you know, weak Um, finite beings, and he's finite as well, but he's so smart that he's stupid. He doesn't see it. So he's um, disarmed. He's made a spectacle of. Third question, how does God triumph over them in him, meaning Jesus? Him is is Jesus there. Well, first of all, notice that the them in this verse at at the end of 15, it, it implies a plurality. So Satan is not acting on his own. You're dealing with a hierarchy um, this is an organized, mobilized army. That's what's you're, what you're dealing with here. So that's not the main thing. I just want you to see that. That's not the main thing of this phrase here. The main point is that right when Jesus at the cross, when he looks his absolute weakest, 
right? The tidal wave of death is breaking over top of his head. It's got tsunami force. The whole world, both realms, seen and unseen, are looking upon his weakness, and the referee is counting him out. Three, two, one. In fact, he's never more strong. When he's giving his life over to gain yours, he's, he's putting on indestructible strength. And so the grave does take him down. The curtains seem to have been drawn on our little story um, from Bethlehem. And Satan's dark army, this, this hierarchy is jubilant, triumphant. In their minds, they've won. They're becoming inebriated on their new power. And they're heckling, they're hissing. But in fact, they've never been more weakened. They've been dealt the decisive blow. Satan is being made a spectacle of. And um, he's, I mean, if you, this is how it comes home to me. I mean, he's standing. Say, in this moment, he's so lost in what's actually real. He's standing over the carcass of our Lord, thinking he has won. And what we know is three days later, Jesus is going to blow the door off of the tomb, right? And put on indestructible strength. And win salvation, resurrection, vindicating him that, that his sacrifice is accepted by the Father and that he has gained salvation for you and for me. So he's securing um, at the cross, he's securing the salvation is so rich so beautiful, so immense with, with mercy and with grace that Peter says that angels for millennia, centuries, are longing to look into this mystery. This is the biblical um, plot twist that Satan never saw coming. He's been disarmed, he's made a showcase of, and he's a spectacle. And he, he has no accusation against Christians. For unbelievers, he has accusation all day, but it's different for Christians. So that's, that's how we know, that's what's happened um, with this new covenant, what this decisive blow that's been dealt to, um, to Satan. So what, what's new now? What's new for you and I or what's still the same? What is Satan still capable of, what he's not capable of pre and post Calvary? So 10 truths about a liar. Some of these come out of the Old Testament, some out of the New, some things it seems to have been affected by uh, what Christ did at Calvary, and then some things are yet to be divvied out, um, and that will happen in the new heavens and new earth and judgment before that. So first, so this is 10 truths about a liar. First, Satan can manipulate matter, weather systems, and bacterial life. So I'm not saying that he can't do more than that. I, I would suspect he can. I'm just saying I can point to biblical passages that show this to be true. So in Job 1, Satan shows himself to be able to manipulate matter and, and weather patterns. That's in Job 1. Job 2.8, he infects Job with a skin disease. He's, he's actually utilizing, how, how this happens, we don't know, but he's utilizing um, you know, uh, bacterial life. Number two, Satan is not omniscient, omnipresent, nor omnipotent. He's not all-knowing, not all-present not all-powerful. To the contrary, the Son of God is. The second person of the Trinity, eternity past, incarnated, perfect life. He, he is capable of all of these things, and so Satan holds no candle to him and never has, just in case you didn't know. So um, you could say that it, it's like this. There was, there was never a time um, when Jesus was not but Satan has a point of origin. He is created. 
uh, Colossians 1, 16 through 17 points to that, that he has a, a point of origin. He's finite. Revelation 2, 13 says, um, or Jesus says, I know where you live, where Satan's throne is. So I take that to mean that he's positioned in the universe. He's not all places. He's in creation. He's not omnipresent. So where is he? I don't know. Is it the Middle East? Probably D.C.? I, I don't know, but he's not, he's probably not showing up in your room. Now, we're dealing with a hierarchy, um, and I think that they're a mobilized army, and they have structure, but it's probably not Satan himself, but it, it may be. I don't know. Number three, Satan can influence and sway legal proceedings and governmental structures. He can influence and sway legal proceedings and governmental structures. So Revelations 2.10, Revelation 2.10, um, Satan apparently influences a legal proceeding and throws some Christians into prison. I mean, he's capable of that. In Job 1, he shows himself capable of manipulating these two people groups, these Chaldeans and Sabaeans, to steal Job's livestock. He stirs them up to do that. Number four, Satan exercises otherworldly dominion by way of a hierarchical, geographical, and militaristic strategy. In Matthew 4, what, what am I getting at here? In Matthew 4, Satan legitimately offers Jesus kingdoms. He puts them on offer to him. And it's a, a legitimate temptation. And so this is geographical and governmental in some way, shape, or form. Um, if you want to read more on how this works, it's grounded in Deuteronomy 32 and, and Psalm 82. You can see it there. So when, when we're sharing the gospel this morning, when we're baptizing, when we give money um, and, and offering to plant churches or to supply with the IMB, this is not just business as usual. This is warfare. So at the cross and resurrection and then Matthew 28, Jesus says what? I have all authority. I've taken it back. And so when we're planting churches in the kingdom of God, which is timeless and spaceless, right? Or not bound by space. Then we're doing warfare. We're taking back and laying stake to what he's already claimed. John 12, 31, we're told that Satan is the ruler of this world. So there's a dimensionality, a regionality to it. There's this, um, also this peculiar reference to the prince of the kingdom of Persia in Daniel 10, um, verses 13 and 20. So this dark angel, uh, a prince, uh, this prince of the kingdom of Persia, which doesn't seem to be speaking to the, to the physical realm, he opposes the angel Gabriel and the angelic prince Michael. And there's this idea of, um, he's the prince over this realm. So that's what I mean by saying it's hierarchical, geographical, and militaristic. So how this comes home to me and you is that this checks out. It does, it does with me. Um, if they have a different strategy, then that would make sense why warfare, spiritual warfare, is different in Asia or Africa or over here. And Mallory and I were talking this week, and it just came home to me about North America. And so we're very scientific, and we think about life in these ways. And so a lot of it is a shadow game, is, is how I think. But if you think about it, and I'm not trying to get political here, but we live in a, in a, in a society 
that will stop making straws to protect turtles. And yet, we don't think a thing about 50 million babies. This is satanic. And so, so we're, they're, they're employing these divergent strategies for temptation, depending on the sinful sensibilities of a people in a given culture. That's how it works. So my experiences overseas have been far more kind of in your face, if that makes sense, and have dealt with um, serious, you know, spiritual warfare. But it's, it's, it's going to be different. And I think textually driven because of this, this strategy idea. It's going to be different. They're not concerned or they don't know who I am um, over there. They're just trying to keep a people in bondage. Number five, Satan aggressively seeks to trap you. Satan aggressively seeks to trap you. One, 1 Timothy 3.7 says that he seeks to trap elders. Satan does. So, I take that to mean he's capable of, of trapping various people as well as your pastors. Pray for us. Um, but his underlings, these minions of his, they study you, and then they seek to tempt and twist you in accord with your particular flavor of sin, your desired stuff. So they concoct this seemingly irresistible elixir of poison just for you, and it's catered and it's personal. They're going to use your TV habits, social media, fast food, age, gender, biology, and go on and on and on. It's going to be catered and it's personal. And so this is the sober part, right? You put your feet on the ground in the morning and they're trying to destroy you. This is not patty cake. Six, Satan is more skilled in the dark arts of deception than any other created being. And I take that from, from Matthew 4 and, and Genesis 3. So John 8.44 says his nature is to lie. If his mouth is moving, he is lying. He's the father and, and originator of lies. So every lie is birthed in him, begins with him. His deception uh, for Christians, though, it's interesting. That's really all he has. It's stout. It's strong. Because deception is what? It, it veils itself as reality. But as a Christian, he's, he's toothless. He has no real power, no real strength, because it's, your debt has been erased. And so at Calvary, um, Satan has been rendered powerless, but he comes to you and he accuses you, but he knows, and his rebel realm knows, his army knows that he's got nothing. He's a house of cards. He's been reduced to powerlessness and fragility when it comes to you. One of my favorite quotes that's outside the Bible, uh, this is Luther, Martin Luther here talking about the devil. He says this, when the devil throws your sins in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this, I admit I deserve death and hell, what of it? For I know one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, son of God, and where he is, I shall be also. Luther knew. We, his accusations were tr are true of us except for Christ. That's why he's always the hero of your story. And so when he comes and brings accusations against you about your past, about your fears, about the future, you say something like what Luther says and you move on. He's a liar. He has no good for you. Don't speak to him. Number seven, Satan is the Lord's lackey for your holiness. 
Satan is the Lord's lackey for your holiness. Uh, in 2 Corinthians 12, 7, you, you'll remember this. Paul, he says he pleads with the Lord um, to take away this messenger of Satan. This thorn is what he calls it. And what's incredible to me about this passage is that the Lord so kindly leaves it. He leaves the thorn in order, this messenger of Satan, in order to bolster Paul in his powerful, or to give him power and to be sanctified. That's why he leaves it. And so Satan is the pawn. In other words, there, there's, there's nothing that's going to stop your sanctification if you belong to Christ. And Satan is just heaping uh, guilt and, and um, you know, eternal suffering on himself. And it will result in your good. Number eight, Satan is able to kill you. Satan is able to kill you, but he's not able to kill, kill you. So he can kill you physically, but he can't kill, kill you. I take this from, from Job 1 through 2 when there's this, this two-form series of, of temptation with Job. And um, whenever the first one doesn't take Job down in his righteousness and following the Lord, uh, Satan comes back to the Lord and says, hey, um, you, you know, skin for skin, if you'll just give me the guy, if I can destroy his health, then, then he'll, he'll turn from you. He will not remain uh, loyal. And, and God says what? He says, okay, you can, you can um, hurt him in every possible physical way, but you cannot kill him, which I take to mean Satan could actually kill him. He's capable of that if the Lord was to give him license to do so. So what do I mean by this, as you're all properly freaked out? I'm saying that he's regulated by Romans 8 for Christians. So Romans 8 always um, binds him. And what does Romans 8 teach? Neither angels nor rulers nor powers can separate you from Christ. So if you find yourself in this Job moment, and you're being Jobed at this point in your life, I'm not trying to say this tritely. I'm not saying that what you're going through isn't difficult, but what I am saying is that Romans 8 still stands. And that in the end, he will be a lackey. And it will result from, from eternity's vantage point. Your suffering, your difficulty will be for God's glory and for your good. Number nine, Satan will in the end be thrown into hell. Satan will, in the end, be thrown into hell. What's amazing to me is that he can see and read his end anytime he wants. It's right there in Matthew 25, 41. He'll be thrown into the lake of fire. And yet, this is the he's so smart, he's stupid thing. He rages against you and me. He tries to destroy you. Um, and, and for me, I, I just, I don't even know how conscientiously he gets around that he knows this is his end and yet he still comes after you so he accuses you he accuses me and he lies but what he can't do is he can't accuse you to the father number 10 satan can be resisted if you don't get any of the other stuff he can be resisted when your sin when the world, 
And when Satan comes up against you, and particularly Satan, and, and kind of says to you, you cannot overcome this sin. You cannot overcome your shame. You cannot overcome this temptation. It's a lie. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So stand your ground. Whatever temptation is being held out from you and is being excited by Satan and, and forced on you and, and, and seeming as though it's the gospel, that it's the good news, that if you pursue this sin, if you pursue this temptation, that it will result in your good, it's a lie. Stand your ground and he will move on. He's finite. His end is coming quickly, and he'll move on to easier prey. That's how I read this. He's limited. So, these, these are all ten. So, we're not always told. This is, this is what's amazing to me. We're not told exactly how Satan does particular things. We have traces, and I've tried to bring them out to you. So, the how isn't always there. But what we know is when we reverse engineer these biblical texts, we, we see what he's capable of. How does he do it? I'm not exactly clear. The Bible's not just throwing that out to us. It is showing what he does. So you need to be sober. You need to be strong. So uh, you're properly scared. Um, what, what do you do? Here's two words just of takeaway that I want to give to you. Memorize Scripture. Fight that you don't see this as just general, just normal. This is warfare. Memorize Scripture. In, in Matthew 4, Jesus fights satanic lies by the truth of Scripture. You're not stronger, you're not smarter than Jesus. What's going to happen in those moments when you're tempted is that you're going to enter into your reservoir of, of scriptural content and truth, and you're going to fight with that, just like Jesus does. And if there's no Bible in you, then there's nothing to fight with. So you memorize um, you know, passages that kind of constellate around your sin uh, set, your patterns. So covetousness, anger, revenge, lust, envy. Memorize truth and then employ it. Number two, dance. So memorize and dance. In the Beerig house, this is just the Beerig house, um, we pretty much have a dance party like every night. Uh, I have a three-and-a-half-year-old coming up on four, and, and, and a one-and-a-half-year-old almost. And so our family devotionals, after about eight minutes and 30 seconds, they just devolve into a dance party, if we make it to eight minutes, okay? So the reason I say that is because in a world where Satan ravages so many, joy is war. It's war. And there's nothing that lays a blow quicker and harder on the kingdom of darkness than joy in Christ. And so for us, sometimes it's Triple E or like KB or something like that. Other times it's the Gettys. But we're dancing, okay? And so for us, um, we want to dance our way all the way to the new heavens and the new earth because we're taunting Satan. If you're here uh, this morning and you don't you don't know Christ, you never trusted in him, um, you never turned from your sins, then, then there is no, there's no joy for you. 
None of these promises of Christ disarming Satan, those are not your promises. I don't mean that to, um, to be down on you. Uh, the reason I'm actually sharing this with you if you're an unbeliever in here is because I want you to walk away from your sin. If you do not walk away from your sin, there's no hope. I've not been around the world you know, any longer than I have or any more around the world than I have, but what I do know is that the world doesn't have anything going other than Jesus. And so what I want you to have is the promise that Satan can't destroy you and that you won't be destroyed with Satan in eternity in the place called hell is what the Bible calls it. And so God created the world good. Um, Adam and Eve, as, as we've kind of already talked about with Genesis 3, they, they rebelled against God's good um, pattern and, and they destroyed everything. Every sin that has taken place in the world came about at that point. Every murder, every rape, every lie, every fib, everything small, everything big, every war became possible at that moment. And because of that, we've all inherited a sin nature, and you are included in that if you're an unbeliever. And you're, you're, you have no righteous record of Christ. And until you turn from your sin and, and put your faith, your, all your trust in Christ, then you have no hope. And I want you to have that hope. So Christ dies on the cross in the place of sinners like me. I'm just like you if you're an unbeliever in here. The only difference is, is that, that I've acknowledged that I'm a sinner. And I've said I have no hope except in Christ. And so I turn from my sin, and I hope that you will too. And, and me and Brandon will be up front at the end, and we would happily talk to you about that. Well, let's, um, let's revisit this National Geographic scene one last time, uh, because why? The transcendent lion theme in the scriptures doesn't belong to Satan, does it? It, it belongs to Christ. So C.S. Lewis in the book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, a, a lot of you have read that or at least seen the, the movies if you're not hardcore. Um, so what, what's going on? Edmund, he commits treachery. There, there's, uh, there's four siblings here. And he commits treachery against his siblings and, and against Aslan, who's the Christ figure. Um, and he willfully, uh, or, or Aslan, to, to kind of to ransom him back is the story, right? To ransom him back. He willingly gives himself to the white witch, the devil figure in the story, um, as a substitute. And so Susan and Lucy, who are dear, close friends and see Aslan as their hero and, and friend, um, they're watching this as this is taking place. Uh, and they kind of sit back in, in the shadows as it takes place. And so Aslan walks to the white witch and gives himself willingly. And her minions uh, tie, her, tie him down. And she pronounces this dreadful uh, victory speech over top of him. And then she lifts high this dagger into the air and she plunges it into the heart of Aslan and destroys him, kills him. And so the white witch, she's charmed uh, to the max at this point. Her evil army, uh, they're kind of drunk, inebriated on this supposed power that they've now gained, and they scurry off to, to go um, you know, fight this battle. And Susan and Lucy, when they see they're gone, they eventually crying. They, they walk out to see what's actually taking place. Is, her, is their friend, is their hero truly dead? And he truly is. Um, and so but he's, he's gone. And th this palpable sorrow is, is in the moment. So the extended time of you know, sorrow, and then they begin to, to walk away. And as they walk away, they hear what behind them? The crack of this rock behind them. And they turn around, and what do they see? Aslan, resurrected, as it were, 
He has torn asunder this stone that he was on. And what does he say? The witch knew the deep magic, but there is a magic deeper still which she did not know. Her knowledge goes back only to the dawn of time, but if she could have looked a little further, back into the stillness and the darkness before time dawned, she would have read there a different incantation. She would have known that when a willing victim who had committed no treachery was killed in a traitor's stead, the table would crack and death itself would start working backwards. That's Aslan. This fictitious figure is so real. He is, in the story, he is a shadow of the real Christ. Pray with me. Father, the Christians in this room, we want to repent and dance like Christians. We recognize from your word, from Colossians, that um, Satan has been rendered accusationless. He has nothing to accuse us with because your son gave us his righteous record. And so whatever lie he has is just that. It's a lie. So help us as, as Christians know this, to live in accord with it, to recognize that his time is running out. Father, we pray that um, any unbeliever here this morning would uh, recognize that they are just that. They're unbelievers, and they need your uh, forgiveness through your son, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.